in prayer as we uh, have a look at God's word together. Uh, Lord, we, we come before you this morning acknowledging our complete dependence upon you to not only to understand the meaning of your Bible, of your, of your word, uh, but Lord, we want to be changed by it. We don't just want to learn facts. Lord, we know that only a genuine change can happen by the work of your Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would work not only through through me and the, the words that I do and don't speak, uh, but that you would work in us individually, that we would see the very message that you have intended for us to hear and that we would respond to you in a way in which you would desire us to respond, that we would honour you in the way that we respond uh, to the message of your Word. Lord, as we see something of the deliverance and your saving of the ancient Israelites. May we also see the greater and more beautiful picture of the salvation you have offered in Jesus Christ. So encourage us, teach us, and if there be some who do not know or haven't yet understood what it is that you have saved us from or how you have saved us, uh, that we may uh, corporately enjoy knowing and responding to what you have done to save us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I love a good bargain. I'm the sort of person who particularly likes to get ripper deals with regards to holidays, with accommodations, flights. That's, that's my area especially. It takes a massive amount of time sometimes, but that's something I really like to do. But there's one thing that's really, really, really frustrating when you have something because of something you either worked your way up to or whatever else, or you've just received a particular voucher, it might be for a free night somewhere or for a free flight, and then all of a sudden you stumble across it and you realise the expiry date has gone. That one thing that you were once really, really excited by, that opportunity's gone missing. Now, because we love having those things, don't we? When you get one of those, goes, oh, rip, look at this, I can't wait to use this. But that thing is only useful if we use it the way that it was intended to be used. Like today, as we saw from our Bible reading, we see what God had provided to save and deliver, particularly the firstborn amongst the Israelites, but that depended very heavily upon them actually taking what God had provided it, the means that he provided, and using it and implementing it the way he intended it to be used. And what we'll see that this saving was done by God's grace alone, by not because they earned something, not even because they deserved it, but purely because they trusted in the means that God had provided for their salvation. Through our series in the book of Exodus, there are a total of 21 sermons. This is up to number nine, so we're slowly working our way through. There will be a little break in the middle as we get towards um, close to the celebration of the 500 years of the Reformation. We're going to actually do uh, five sermons leading up to that time uh, of the five pillars of the Reformation. So we'll get to that when we get there. But one thing that we've seen throughout the book of Exodus is there's been this sort of constant conflict between two claims of ultimate authority and power, between the almighty God, the creator of all things, the ruler above all rule and authority, and Pharaoh, 
the highest leader in the world at that point in time who presumed that he was the ultimate rule and authority in control of all things. It went all the way back to chapter 1 where he started to get worried about the growth of the Israelite people in his land and he wanted to, to prevent their growth. And so he devised all these strategies, firstly to make them work hard and then eventually to have the firstborn killed. But we see that the plans and the promises of God prevailed. They could not be undone by Pharaoh. God had promised to Jacob, said, do not be afraid to go down into Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Last week, as Samuel sort of looked at the first of the nine of the ten plagues, we saw again there was these competing claims of authority. Here, God was doing these great signs and wonders in Egypt and then Pharaoh would turn to his magicians and they would replicate and they would copy some of these things. But in the end, Pharaoh would have to concede that he was dependent upon God to reverse them because his magicians were unable to do that. But something also that was a threat to his claim to be the ultimate authority is he perceived himself to be a direct descendant from the sun god, Ray. He thought he was in control of sun, he was in control of these things. Yet in the ninth plague we saw who was truly in control of these things as God brought complete darkness over the land for three days. As we look through today's passage, we're going to see a whole lot more of reversals of things that Pharaoh thought were his domain, his control, where God shows that he alone is the ultimate authority. He alone is the one who is worthy of all honour and praise. He alone is the one who is able to control all things. But then to the, the naked eye to think, is he really the God who's in control of all things? The children of God... The Israelites have now been in Egypt under a foreign ruler, treated ruthlessly like slaves for 400 years. You can imagine why people would look at that and think, is he really in control? Why would he allow this to go on for 400 years? But at the same time, we need to recognise one thing. This wasn't unexpected. This was very much part of the very plan of God. It was revealed even when God made covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So the fact that they're there is not a surprise but also the very promise of God that he was going to bring them out of their slavery. He was going to bring them out of slavery with great possessions and he was going to bring judgment upon the land upon which they had been enslaved. He'd reveal that to Abraham. He'd reveal that to Moses. We've seen throughout the book of Exodus. Moses and Aaron had brought that to the people, to the elders of Israel and also the, the greater populace. Some of the things that we're looking at today have been completely foretold back in chapter 4. Even some of the things that Samuel spoke about last week. Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let these people go. And last week as Samuel spoke about the first nine plagues, we saw this playing out. 
that Moses performed all the signs and wonders that God had given him to in front of Pharaoh and in front of the Egyptians. But even though there were glimpses, even though there were moments when Pharaoh said, I will let you go, he always changed his mind. God hardened his heart. But then look at verse 22. Then, so there's been a time where Pharaoh's heart would be hardened and he would change his mind. But then there would become a finality. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve you. And if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. So we see there's a finality. What was begun as seemed like an endless cycle through those first nine plagues where things were threatened, things were carried out. Pharaoh sometimes would say you can go or he'd put sort of limitations, you can go but you can't take your livestock, then he'd change his mind. Now comes the finality. The deliverance that people had seen promised back to Abraham, the people, the deliverance that people were longing for and waiting for. And we see something of that finality right from the very first verse of chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more. There's not going to be another after this. One plague more. I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Remember how we've seen that throughout Exodus? It doesn't just say that, that, that Pharaoh will permit or he will allow them to go. It says he will send them out. This one who was so paranoid back in chapter 1 that they were going to grow in numbers and he worried that they would escape. Now it gets to a point by the mighty hand of God that not only will the people be allowed to go, they will actually be sent out. They'll be told to leave. They'll be evicted. This much-awaited departure is imminent. It's about to happen. But the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn in all Egypt, amongst the people and amongst the livestock, is not the first sign of God at work in this passage. See there in verse 3, it says, When you go to the Egyptians, asking them for their gold and for their silver, they'll give it to you for they have found, you have found favour in their sight. That's a bit of a turnaround, isn't it? Remember when Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh beforehand and things got worse? The, the foremen go towards Pharaoh and they come back to Moses and Aaron and say, you have made us a stench in the eyes of the people. Now God has turned their hearts around in such a way that they, they value the people of Israel and even value their leader Moses as well. Now, the land of Egypt has been pretty much decimated by, by these plagues. They've had major destruction of crops, major destruction of all sorts of things. Now it comes to the climax, which is quite horrific in its nature. Moses says, thus says the Lord, about midnight I shall go amongst the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will there be again. 
It's pretty horrific, isn't it? Now we've seen all sorts of things, massive piles of frogs, all sorts of things. But now the firstborn of every single family and every single livestock. And it says there will be cries in Egypt like never before. We see in that even a beginning of something of a reverse we saw back in earlier chapters. When the cries of the Israelites had come out before the Lord and he'd heard their groans and he remembered his covenant. Imagine being Pharaoh hearing this. He's already seen nine major miraculous things that God has done in his land. He knows this God is capable of carrying out everything he says he's going to do. But once again, the Lord hardens his heart. The Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So he even gives a little bit of a reasoning behind the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. By hardening his heart, it allows his wonders to multiply in Egypt. And back in chapter 7, verse 5, it says that they may multiply in Egypt that they may know that I am the Lord. This is the final plague. Unlike all the nine beforehand where there was a reversal, there is no plan, there is no sign, there is no intention of a reversal. This is a final, final plague, which the end result will be Pharaoh and the people will send the Israelites out of the land. Now, I'm actually going to jump over to chapter 12, verse 29 to 42. If you've read through the entire thing, you'll notice that it goes sort of back and forth a little bit. So I'm trying to group things together thematically this morning. Where we see what actually happened in regards to uh, this plague that was threatened. Then at midnight, just as God had said it would, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat down on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Completely indiscriminate. Every single family, every single livestock, firstborn was killed during that night. We said there's a fair lot of reversals happening in this passage. Remember back to chapter 1 when Pharaoh presumed it was his right to the firstborn and he wanted to see the firstborn of all of the Israelite children killed? Yet because the promises of God prevailed, he was not able to cause those things to happen. Now in this reversal, now all of the firstborn amongst Egypt have been killed. This climatic and horrific event also has a reaction which is far more significant than all of the previous nine plagues that have gone before. Look at the way that people respond now. This is Pharaoh's response. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron at night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and your people in Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. So this is a little bit more than just saying, can you reverse this? Four times in four completely different ways, Pharaoh says, out, 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 get out. There's no wasting time. In the middle of the night, he calls upon Moses and Aaron. saying, get out, go away. You're out of the land, I'm sending you out. And in doing that, not only does he acknowledge that God 
is the ultimate authority. He's got nothing in comparison. But he actually goes that step further in the way he finishes this and asks Moses, and bless me also. He wants the favour of this God on his own side. But we see something else in the details. It's not just Pharaoh who wants to send the people out, but even the general people of Egypt want the people of the Israelites and send them out and happily giving them their gold and silver as they go out. Remember the goal of why God hardened his heart? That the signs might multiply in Egypt, that they might know that he is the Lord? It's been very clear, this is a God to whom there is no comparison. One who's not to be dishonoured, one who's not to be messed around with. This is the God who has power over nature and power over life and death. And because he is the creator of all things, and the owner of all things, and therefore the rightful ruler of all things, he's worthy of all honour and praise. Yet he's been greatly dishonoured by the Egyptians, who presume it's their right to take and give life. They presume it's their right to, to kill and enslave God's people. But our God keeps all of his promises, including that they would be, become a great nation in Egypt, that the descendants of Abraham would be as um, numerous as the stars of the sky. When we began Exodus, it spoke about 70 people who entered into the land of Egypt. Now, with the passing of some 400 years, Chapter 12, 600,000 men, not numbering the women and children, depart from Egypt. But in order to deliver a people, God needed to do something to protect a people so they could be delivered. Why was it that the Hebrew firstborns were not killed? Let's have a look from chapter 12, verses 7 and also verses 12 and 13. This is what God provided. Then they shall take some of the blood. So there's talking in the context of, of Passover. They, they'd kill the, the Passover lamb. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Then you get down to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this Passover festival began as a historic event that God had provided to save his own people from his wrath. That they would take an undefiled male lamb who would be sacrificed and whose blood would be placed on their own doorposts as a sign to say, we are trusting in your provided means of rescue and saving. And when God saw the houses which had those things, he would pass over and the firstborn would not die within those households. We've already seen how indiscriminate this plague was, completely wiping out the firstborn of every household, every livestock amongst the Egyptians. And had not the Israelites taken and done what God had told to provide for their salvation, the same thing would have happened in their house. 
You would be mistaken if you think that the Israelites were spared just purely because they were Israelites. Had they not implemented God's provision, the blood of the lamb on their door, they too would have lost their firstborn. This rescue, this saving is by God's power alone, by God's grace alone, by God's provided means alone. But it wasn't just a once-off historical festival. Throughout this passage, we, we see the reminder that this is something that you are to do on an annual basis. They even changed the calendar. This became the first day of the year, so as the year turned around, that they were a reminder of the God who had saved them, who had delivered them out of slavery to make them a people for his own self. It was to be an ongoing reminder, but it was also a teaching opportunity. We see in chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign on your hand as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as its appointed time from year to year. There's an interesting little point here, which we'll come back to a bit later on, is that this is instruction saying, this is what you'll do when you enter the land of Canaan, when you enter the promised land. But in the middle of that, um, it says, this is what the Lord did for me. Unless you are Joshua and Caleb, none of those people who were entered the land of Canaan actually experienced the exodus out of Egypt. Yet you are to tell your son, this is what the Lord did for me. Why? The connection will come back to that in a little while. But why all this talk of the firstborn? The theme of a firstborn is an important theme and it comes up regularly in the Bible. And it speaks more than just something that is the first thing to become born into a family or into a livestock. There are a number of occasions within the Bible where someone who's described as the firstborn who was not the first to be born in their family. Joseph, Jacob, David, all being examples of that, who are described as being the firstborn, but not the first to be born. The firstborn was the one who had the privileged position within the family. The one who had the privileged relationship with the father. And the one who would be the one who would receive the inheritance. We saw back in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 and 23. God speaks of Israel as being my son, my firstborn. Who had a privileged relationship with him. It even becomes lawish. You'll see throughout the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. That the firstborn belongs to the Lord. In this passage alone, it says, even the firstborn of your livestock, you are to dedicate. You will either be sacrificed or to have a substitute for them sacrificed. And all the firstborn sons to be consecrated to the Lord. Now this was the most valuable of things. Yet throughout all of the Old Testament law, you see the firstborn sons, the first fruits, all these things are being brought and dedicated and brought before God. The creator of all things, the rightful owner and ruler of all things. Therefore it is right to acknowledge that in the most valuable, precious things that we have, that they too are his. It's the same reason why we see back in Genesis chapter 22 when God calls Abraham to put his own son on the altar as a sacrifice. 
Because Abraham understood that all things belong to God. Yet if you're not familiar with that story, I better tell you the good news of it is that God provided a substitute lamb in that situation. He did not have to sacrifice his son. And just as God provided a substitute for Isaac, so also God's provided a substitute for the Israelites in both the Egyptians and in the Passover land. There are things we like and there are things that we don't like in a Bible passage like this, aren't there? We certainly love the idea that people have been treated ruthlessly as slaves for 400 years, are set free. We love that. But there's still a little bit part of us that feels uncomfortable with the idea that the firstborn of an entire nation is killed in the process. Part of us wants to ask that question, why can't God just let him go? He can do that. There are, look throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, there's animals, there's always a substitute, a death that's taking place to redeem and save another. Whereas the book of Hebrews puts it, it says, without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sins. Peter ends in his commentary, probably words it quite nicely as he puts it this way. The tenth plague was not a divine temper tantrum where God flexes his muscles before the Egyptians and really lets them have it. It is the necessary implementation of a redemptive pattern, one that requires death as a means to a fuller life. That throughout the scriptures, the idea of a substitutionary death to provide for the redemption, the saving of another. And while we're uncomfortable with the death of the Egyptians, what we also need to remember is that the Israelites were equally deserving of that exact same death. It wasn't that somehow they were more special or that they were innocent. It's not just a New Testament teaching the idea that the wages of sin is death. In other words, the consequences of sin or rebellion against God, failing to honour him as God or giving him thanks, is death. It's what all of us are headed towards. When Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death came through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the course that every single human being descended from Adam, which is every single one of us, was headed towards. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, separation from the creator and the life giver. We've all inherited that. The Israelites were not spared because they were innocent or because they deserved it. They too were descended from Adam, inherited the curse of death. The only reason why they were spared was because a substitute died in their place. That God had provided the blood of the Passover lamb and when God saw that, his wrath was turned away from them. Yet this annual festival which they conducted continually looked forward to something greater that was coming. The fact that it was repeated shows that we want something to be final once for all. Do you remember what John the Baptist says when he first sees Jesus? He sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So he takes this picture of a Passover lamb as he sees Jesus and says, this is the lamb of God who doesn't just turn away God's wrath for a moment, who takes away the sin, and not just for a specific nation, who takes away the sin of the world. The New Testament writers go further to present Jesus being the final, never to be repeated Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5.7 Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, which we joked in our community group last week. If we ever plan a church, call it New Lump Church. That'd be a great name. Everyone wants to be know they're a new lump. As you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the New Testament writers take Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as being the final fulfillment of this Passover lamb. That he was the substitute provided that he would die the death that we deserve that not only turns away God's wrath, but takes away the sin. That we are given the righteousness of Christ. That we will stand before him, not in our sin, in our failings, but in the righteousness of Christ given to us. He was our substitute, just like the lamb was for the Israelites. But just like the Israelites, just the fact that Jesus has died on a cross doesn't necessarily make it naturally effective. It only becomes effective when we trust in the means that God has provided. Jesus has provided the way of salvation But we must trust in that means by acknowledging that we haven't honoured in the way that we should. That we realise that we do deserve death and we give thanks and we cry out to God and say, thank you that you've done that, that you've died the death that I desire. I'm trusting in you that you have dealt decisively with my sin. I'm trusting with you that you are going to raise me up and that I will be with you on the last day for all eternity. But I always wonder about one thing. I wonder what it felt like for the Israelites. 400 years living as a slave. In other words, at the time this thing happened, that they, they finally get taken out of Egypt, no one living would have actually known life any other way than being as a slave. It would have been all that ever experienced. Now you often hear about people who move from a foreign country where things might be really restrictive and they, they come to Australia and they're like, wow, I never knew this was possible because all I'd ever seen was this. I never knew there was a hope of anything else. Like, think about it. Who actually knows anything about their relatives from 400 years ago and that actually has a profound effect on their life today? God, hands up your little ancestry.com freaks, where are you? How on? <laughs> you know, there's something there, love it. I don't think I know even, I don't think I know anything about my great grandfather. There you go. Um, the thing is, this was all they'd known. You can imagine that would have actually started to feel like normal. And they might not have even dreamt or thought of anything else. That's the same struggle we see all the way around us, isn't it? Every single one of us has born with a natural hostility towards God. The Bible says everything that we, that we need to know about, has he has made plain to us that he is a God of all power. Yet we suppress the truth. 
in unrighteousness. But we've come so used to living this way and we're surrounded by people so used to being slaves thinking this is all life is. You live for 80 years, you die and it's all over. How hopeless and meaningless and without complete purpose is that? To, to reduce life down to being a short lifespan, you do some stuff, then you die. But if we were created, then there's a purpose. You don't make stuff without there being a purpose. And that same almighty loving creator who brought everything we see around us into existence also loved us enough that he came down into this world and that he died the death on the cross for our sin to be a substitute for us so that our sins could be forgiven, that we could know God because it's our sin that kept us from God, and that we can be restored to be who we were truly created to be in right relationship with him. For the Israelites, they had the Passover festival and they continue to practice the Jewish people to this day as a reminder of a God who drew them out of slavery, a God who rescued them, and the God who provided the means of their rescue. But also was something that would teach the future generations. As Christians today, we have a very similar thing represented as we come together in the Lord's Supper or Communion, whatever other title you want to call it. We're in the bread and in the juice. We have the signs that Jesus said, the bread is representative of my body, given for you on the cross where I was your substitute, where I died in your place. And of the juice, representative of his blood shed for us. And just as as God had provided the, the blood of the lamb to turn away God's wrath and to save a people, so also as we, we partake in these things, not only are we reminded what God has done to provide from our salvation the natural consequences of our rebellion against him, but also as a teaching opportunity. Because let's, let's face it, if you came into a church and you think, why on earth are people that just have a little bit of bread and this tiny little drink, they must be really cheap at that place, only give them tiny drinks. But it is a reminder of what God has done to turn away the natural consequences of our rebellion to him, to forgive us, But also, too, it says to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ until he returns, that he is coming again. And that if we place our trust in God's means of salvation, not these things I was pointing there, but upon what Jesus has done on the cross, then him returning again isn't something to be feared, but is something to be looked forward to as we see him face to face And we experience everything that we were created to be in relationship with him and enjoy him forever. So we're going to close in prayer um, from um, from the message uh, and then we're going to come to a time of communion where we, we share in these things. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we were hopeless to do anything to rescue ourselves, you provided a substitute and not a substitute that needed to be repeated year after year, but a substitute that dealt with decisively once for all the sins of the world. 
And we thank you that we don't need to reach a particular standard of living before we can trust in your means of salvation. In fact, it is a means you have provided for us while we were sinners. So in all of our brokenness, in all of our hostility and rebellion towards you, in all of our sin and the things that we have done wrong, when when any person comes before you, acknowledges that we haven't honoured you as we should, and cries out for your forgiveness and trusting that, that Jesus' death is sufficient substitute to pay for our sin, you grant them from death to eternal life. Thank you that you have provided for us. And we pray as we share in this thing, which is to be a reminder, but also to teach, uh, that we might be humbled and forever thankful as we ponder what Jesus has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.